hey, you're here. I'm happy to welcome you back to the Home for All podcast. If this is your first time here, welcome. I am ACARS Communications Director Kelly Moss, and I'm here to kick off today's episode for you. This is going to be so great if you want to learn everything there is to know about rentals and rental regulations, and not just from the local vantage point, but from the state perspective as well. Your host for today's episode is ACARS Vice President of Government Affairs, Jamie McMillan. Today, Jamie will be joined by ACARS Legislative Chair, Jeanette Wright, and Ohio Realtors Government Affairs Director, Beth Wanless. Together, they're going to have some amazing and thought-provoking discussion around the topic of rental regulations. So let's do this. Grab your coffee and your earbuds and make this spot your home for the next 30 or so minutes. We're happy that you're here. ACAR Home for All podcast is a bi-weekly production where we will host interviews, facilitate conversations, and talk about what's happening in the world of real estate. We'll introduce you to the important people in your community and help you learn how to grow your real estate-related business. This is an adult show and some adult language might occasionally creep into the conversation. So let's move forward and find out what makes Northeast Ohio the best home for all. All right. So hello to all of our listeners. Um, I'm Jamie McMillan, the Vice President of Government Affairs here at ACAR, and I am so pleased to be joined today by two leaders that are really just knocking it out of the park in the real estate industry here in Ohio. And so I have with me Beth Wanless, who is the Government Affairs Director for Ohio Realtors. Thank you, Beth, for joining us. Hello. Thank you. (laughs) And Jeanette Wright, who is our current legislative chair, but also a recent Leadership Academy grad, just elected to the ACAR Board of Directors and a whole plethora of other things that she's involved with here in in the Northeast Ohio region. Thank you, Jeanette, for joining us. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to talk about rental regulations, what's going on at the state house, what's going on here locally, just to give our listeners a quick update on what we're seeing and what maybe we expect coming down the pike. So before we dive into specific issues, I know for ACAR, when we're looking at things, uh, whether it's rental, a rental property or an owner-occupied property, it's through the lens of a private property owner. And so when we look at rental issues, we keep that in mind too. And that's that's how we come up with a lot of the policies that we that we have. Beth, how does Ohio Realtors look at rental property regulations? Very similarly. Um, first and foremost, we want to strike a balance with private property rights and reasonable regulations and laws. Um, but that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to protect a private property owner's right to own that property and use it um, in a responsible manner and hopefully make some money off of it if that's what they choose to do. Um, And then, of course, a lot of our members do own and manage uh, residential rental property. I think I saw the numbers around 30 to 40 percent own at least one unit. Um, And I think it's important to also protect their interests and um, make sure that the free market works uh, the best it can for them. The other thing, too, I think I'll say, and I don't know if this holds true at the state level, but for us, certainly, I think the property owners that I seem to be more impacted by and supportive of our positions are those small mom and pop 
housing providers who have maybe one or two or a very small portfolio and not necessarily the big corporate guys um, that seem to navigate regulations a little bit easier. Do you find that true, Beth? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. The mom and pops are just folks who invested in a property maybe a long time ago when they've just sort of been breaking even on it, knowing that they're going to potentially sell it someday and put uh, a child through college or a grandchild through college or retire on it. Um, and they may not be able to navigate some of those um, local ordinances that move so quickly, as you well know, Jamie, um, you know, when there are constant changes to uh, local landlord tenant law, it, it's really hard for them and it can become expensive, cost prohibitive, and also infringe on their right to use that property as they need to do that. Jeanette, I know you have a really awesome perspective on all of our issues because yes, you're a realtor, but you're also a homeowner and a rental housing provider. Whenever you hear us talk about rental regulations, what what are you thinking from the housing provider perspective? Well, as a housing provider, especially considering myself as a, one of the mom and pop housing providers, I think of what the effect's going to be, not just on me, but to my tenant. Um, unfortunately, when certain um, rules are made, they have an effect on the tenant um, and not all. And some of those are monetary effects on the tenants. Um, you know, if there's something that changes, you know, what we pay in terms of just maybe utility bills, as we talk about, you know, increases now in, um, you know, in, in the cost of gas or in the cost of light. So if you're paying for those for your tenants, if you're paying for, you know, water for your tenant, if you're having to make certain improvements and not that homes are not livable because homes are definitely livable, but when you're mandated to make certain large um, improvements to your home, that cost has to be absorbed by both the homeowner and the tenant. Very true. That kind of leads into my first big question um, and, and maybe something that we'll get to talk to talk about a little bit um, further down, but that impact on tenants. I think so often when these regulations are put into place, people think it's the property owner that is bearing the, you know, the brunt of all these costs and don't realize what that trickle down effect is to tenants. So, Jeanette, I know you chair our legislative committee and rental policy has certainly been a big topic. What are some of the things that our legislative committee has been dis discussing? So some of the topics we've been discussing have included uh, the pay to state ordinance, um, which is where if a um, tenant who is facing an eviction tenders their, their rent that there's an opportunity for them then to stay inside of uh, inside of their residence without the eviction happening. Um, we've been talking about source of income as a protected class uh, that has focused more around the acceptance or non-acceptance of the um, the housing voucher program, which is referred to as Section 8. And so there are some challenges with that, not necessarily because of the tenant or um but because of how the program is administered. So that is a challenge that, that we've been talking about. Um, we've been talking about um, there's a, a, a small buzz around um, inspections and licensings of those who are um, property owners. 
and whether or not that is something that should that should happen. Um, we always support like excuse me inspections, as well as making sure that there are uh, livable places for all of the the tenants and residents to stay. You know, keeping the neighborhoods good. Um, we, however, oppose the licensing because there are private property rights that we do believe that each homeowner should have um, and does have. Um, there's also some advocates that are now talking about criminal background checks. And so that is a that's a dicey subject when you talk about criminal background checks, because you have to consider uh, the nature of that particular crime. We have to consider the length of the, the crime. We also have to consider uh, whether or not there's been any sort of reoccurrence, uh, as well as just those around, um, you know, in that in that particular neighborhood, because you want to make sure that we're keeping people safe. But we also don't want to discriminate against anyone who has had a problem in their past because that doesn't mean that they are continuing to operate in that mode. Um, and then another thing that we're talking about, we're just talking about more activity around the public housing associations and some programs where they're trying to um, increase the mobility or the pathway to home ownership. And that's something that's sort of new on the horizon or newer on the horizon in terms of developing. So we're waiting to see what comes of that. So I know Pay to stay is kind of at a weird place right now just because of a recent um, statement, I guess, message that was sent from a local housing court judge to Cleveland City Council that she believed um, some action at the state was going to prevent the city of Cleveland from actually enforcing their pay to stay. So while I want to come back to some of these other topics that you hit on, Jeanette, I think I want to jump to Beth real quick. Stopping rent control was a huge win, huge win for the state of Ohio. And I, and that is the, um, the legislative action that that judge was referencing. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what that policy means for housing providers and its tenants? Sure. Yeah. Rent control is, I think I will say it time and time again, the worst housing policy ever to be created. It impacts both apartments um, and also owner-occupied properties. So it really does have an overwhelming waterfall effect on all real estate. Um, but we, we were able to put an amendment into a house bill. It was House Bill 430 um, at the request of the Columbus Realtors because there was a local initiative by some housing activists there to implement rent control through a ballot initiative. And... Um, essentially, we believe that they were going to do this in November, which means that um, the last day of session in the legislature before they recessed until after the election was June 1st. And so I think we found out about this on like April 28th or something like that. And that was when the petition was filed. So we worked with the members of the legislature, um, specifically Senator Rob McCauley from uh, Northwest Ohio. He's really familiar with landlord-tenant law. Um, he's an attorney. He also represents clients um, in that in that uh, industry. But we were able to get that written by a constitutional law attorney here at a, a big corporate law firm, Corey Sater, Seymour and Pease. Um, he's a constitutional law expert and just a complete pleasure to work with. I really love spending um, you know time talking to him and learning about how we could get this done. But we did it in like about three weeks, um, got that bill passed. 
And, um, you know, unfortunately, the bill did pass along party lines, but it was purely because I think we didn't have the time to really educate members of the General Assembly on how devastating that policy is. Because once you talk to somebody and you explain, you know, all the caveats and, you know, data that proves how dangerous rent control is, they're like, oh, yeah, we got to stop this. So um, the bill went into effect on September 23rd. And all it says is that um, there shall be no rent control here in Ohio. And rent control is where a government entity says how much you can charge in rent. So, you know, you can't charge more than $400 a month for a one bedroom. Um, That's just an example. And then it also says that they cannot dictate how much you increase rent annually. So no local government will be able to do that here in Ohio. And we're not unique. There are 31 other states that do this. So we were really just kind of catching up on that policy that had been passed in so many other states. Um, but it's it's a big win. And I've heard from a lot of investors and developers saying, you know, with the passage of that and then a few other pieces of legislation at the Ohio State House, Ohio's a much more attractive place to invest and develop um, than it was, you know, two years ago. And they, you know, investors and apartment owners and housing providers, they want certainty. They're, you know, I know in your neck of the woods in the Akron Cleveland area, when there are so many discussions about ordinances being um, introduced and pending and moving quickly, it really provides this like weird sense of uncertainty and it scares people. And the last thing you want is to reduce the number of housing providers and housing options. Like you really need to keep those um, those options open to renters. That's what keeps prices affordable. So that has passed. I'm super excited about that. Um, I think that was a huge win for a lot of groups. It was a big coalition involved in that, um, and it was a lot of a lot of hard work, but a lot of fun to see that pass because we knew we were doing the right thing. Um, I know it looked, you know, on, on its face, you're like, oh, capping rent seems like a great idea, mm-hmm. but it really leads to um, a disastrous consequence of reducing the availability of affordable housing. So a big win for Ohio and housing providers for sure. So one of the things that you were talking about with this particular bill made me think about source of income. And I know Jeanette hit that and it's something that we hear about here in Cuyahoga County, and it was included as a recommendation in a recent county housing plan put together by a group of stakeholders. And full disclosure, ACAR is a member of that group. However, they know that we do not support mandating uh, participation in a voluntary federal program. And that's essentially what would happen if source of income was a protected class because of the voucher program. Um, And the that program specifically um, that comes with some additional contractual obligations that an owner would have to take on, not to mention some of the red tape. So do you think that, Beth, there's a chance um, that the source of income would be included as something that that rent control bill would kind of prevent? That's a really good question. There's been discussion about if So when we looked at the statute, it looked like the landlord-tenant law is already sort of preempted from being messed with, if you will, 
um, by the local governments. And so what we really did was articulate and expressly say rent control and rent stabilization is you know, preempted. But it did make us say, like, is this already in statute? I mean, we've never seen it challenged in the courts. And so I was we were kind of wondering, you know, all of us were talking about, like, could this be more? And we just don't realize it yet because it really hasn't been a thing in Ohio until very recently. So I would be curious to learn more about that and see if there are other aspects of local landlord-tenant law that are already preempted by state law, but we just haven't like noticed it yet, I guess. So I, it could be, I just don't know yet. So Jeanette, you're, you're a housing provider and you've participated um, in the voucher program, Section 8. Where, where do you, how, how do you see that that program could be improved? That's one of the things that we always share in meetings is, you know, the, the voucher program is a really good program, but the administration of it, the bureaucracy, the red tape often is a disincentive to participate. Where, how do you see things? I agree. It's actually a great program. Um, you know, I, I will say that. I have actually benefited at, at one point in my life from being a recipient of, of that voucher and I and I make no no uh, no qualms about that. Um, but I also have tenants who have used it. I've had tenants who have graduated from it. And um, you know, the program itself is, as you stated, a great program. However, getting through some of that that red tape, whether that be the rental determination, uh, that period it takes to get that rental determination and what happens if you don't want to accept those rents. There's a tenant out there who now has uh, utilized some of their time and potentially lost uh, for other uh, housing units that they could have applied for. Um, a part of that also is that um, they're trying to make things a little more streamlined, but would you have to show up for the, the landlord um, the landlord meetings just to learn about it and then to complete the documents. And so um, just getting your house through the getting your house through the inspection, uh, there are times where if your home doesn't pass the inspection, another inspector comes out. And what if they find something that was not on the first inspection? What happens if um, you know once a tenant is into the property, and they have the annual inspections. And if the tenant does not let someone in, and so you go through the abatement and just all of the processes and trying to talk to someone and trying to get someone to understand and doing this all in a very uh, quick time frame, And so it becomes frustrating. Um, you know, it also can become frustrating if you do have a tenant who's a problem. Uh, one of the rules had been, and, um, you know, because my tenant's, that I've had, it's been over years. I don't know if this has been updated, but it had been that there was a five-day notice required for the tenant and you needed to also uh, let the housing provider know. Well, letting the housing provider know and trying to get them to understand and get those move packets and all of that um, is challenging, you know, and even trying to accept a tenant now who has been unfortunately evicted through, um, you know, with Section 8, they have to pay back those prior uh, monies that they owe. And so sometimes that can be a challenge for them as well. So just trying to get the program to run more efficiently and more effectively for uh, a housing provider. Uh, and again, if it, I, I say a lot of times if it's hard for us, 
imagine how it can be for some tenants. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, getting getting that um, as well for the tenants is also difficult. That's true. And I, as you were speaking about that, all I could think is this is something that is definitely going to be more of a disincentive to participate to those mom and pops again, who maybe don't have the luxury of a flexible schedule to meet the, you know, inspectors that need to come out and do their work or to go to those landlord housing provider, you know, education sessions that you were referencing there. It's, it's a good program. It's a great program if you can navigate it, but not without its challenges to, to be a participant. Correct. And time being our most precious commodity is definitely a challenge um, with that program. So there's also a lot of buzz around short term rental regulations. And I guess I should say Airbnbs. I said short term rental to somebody not long ago and they said, what are you talking about? And I said, basically an Airbnb. So kind of like Google has become, you know, uh, an alternative for a search. (laughs) Airbnb is the, the new alternative for short term, short term rental, at least in the public vernacular. I know locally we see stuff pop up pretty frequently, um, but there's also been some action earlier this summer on short term rentals at the state house. Beth, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. House Bill 563 was introduced um, earlier this year, and it was introduced by Representative Ron Ferguson and Representative Sarah Fowler Arthur. Um, And it was in response to many communities across Ohio outright banning uh, a homeowner's ability to, you know, rent out their home for a short-term rental or an Airbnb, whether it's a bedroom in their house or just their entire home. I actually live in one of those communities, um, and I I kind of dug deeper into that, and I found some of what they were doing could potentially be discriminatory, requiring the names of the tenants and having someone approve those names, and mm. that made me really, like, you know, very nervous to hear that. So, um, but House Bill 563 would uh, prohibit the outright banning of short-term rentals. And it would essentially just say that a local government could regulate a short-term rental or an Airbnb similar to how an apartment is regulated. Um, so you do have, you know, noise ordinances and, you know, curfews and that sort of thing. Um, totally fine, but you can't regulate it more than the apartment uh, units. And they're, there's been a lot of momentum recently with that bill. Um, we are in recess, so that started on June 1st, and they, the legislature, um, the Ohio State House, they will not come back until November, mid-November after the election. So uh, for those folks who are listening who don't know, we are on a two-year cycle at the General Assembly. So at the end of this year, all bills that have not passed will die, and they have to be reintroduced um, in January or in the new year for the next two-year cycle. So that'll be the 135th General Assembly. Um, There's been, you know, some pretty vocal pushback from legislators on that bill. Um, It's all about, like, I heard, you know, Bob Smith had a neighbor who had a party and shot fireworks off at 4 a.m. But it's, you know, it's a lot of those, like, kind of random personal experiences. It's like Mm one-offs. 
I don't think there's like a flood of short-term rentals in, you know, like Hilliard, Ohio, that people are throwing like ragers every night. I could be wrong, but maybe it's happening. So some legislators are very strongly opposed. Um, they also believe that it's a local government issue. Um, local governments should be able to determine how, you know, they regulate these. And then there, on the other side of that, there are some legislators who are very supportive of this because it's a private property rights issue, first and foremost. Um, you know, some people, I think this is a great opportunity for people to make money if that's what they want to do. Um, you know, maybe they're having trouble making ends meet and they need to rent out a room or rent out their house and stay with family. I've heard of that before many times, you know, the government probably shouldn't be dictating what that person does with their property. Um, we do take, we did take a position to support that bill and we're a part of a coalition being led by, um, various groups. So I think, Ooh, I don't want to make a guess on what's going to happen with the bill. Um, I don't know, but there are a lot of local communities coming out and banning short-term rentals in response to that bill. Um, so I think it's it's important to really um, stay focused on that legislation and see if we can get it moving when they come back from recess. I agree. We saw a few a few communities up here do short-term short-term moratoriums um, while they were trying to allegedly figure out how to, you know handle short-term rentals. Um, and often too, I would say we would see an ordinance pop up in a community after a party house had made the news, or perhaps a couple neighbors were mad because of tight parking or whatever, you know, seeing people, different people going in and out of a house every weekend, which, you know, I get it would be maybe a little concerning to see that, but um, the thing that I think people forget, and I have often shared this with legislators, councilmen, mayors, whoever is, you know, think about, especially here in Northeast Ohio, we have some of the best medical facilities in Ohio. And so there are, I'm sure, families who would much rather wow. find a short-term rental home to stay in if they are find themselves in the unfortunate position of having to be near, you know, the Cleveland clinic or pick your hospital that has the care that you need. And, and that house may be more affordable than staying at a hotel or driving back and forth may not be an option. And so we often, I think, think about those Airbnbs as party houses, but it could also be a home for a business professional that's relocating or has a temporary uh, position here in, in Northeast Ohio for whatever reason. And a hotel just isn't always the best option, but this is an often an affordable um, housing option. Yeah. yeah. That's a really good point. I didn't think about Cleveland Clinic. and I have family who's been to Cleveland Clinic. It's the best hospital. Um, I did not even think about yeah. that. And it's, I know Airbnb is taking a stronger stance opposing parties Mm -hmm. So they officially passed the policy that there are no longer parties allowed. You know, you you cannot rent any Airbnb to have, you know, your girlfriend's bachelorette party or whatever, um, because the negative you know, stigma that they're getting because of being, you know, the party house. Um, and I, I think that's an appropriate 
position to take. And, you know, Airbnbs are not just places to throw parties. They serve a legitimate purpose in society. And I think they're a really cool, innovative way to use your property to make some money. I mean, why not? Yeah. We've covered a lot in a short amount of time. And I know we haven't covered everything, certainly. But those are, I think, probably some of the hottest topics, at least around rentals that we're seeing. Um, I wanted to ask you both, for your opinion, and, and there's no right or wrong answer to this, but how do we find the right balance to ensure that tenants have rights because they absolutely should and that housing providers are covered as well? Is it even possible? Jeanette, I'll start with you. That's such a loaded question, Jamie. Um, <laughs> is there such a thing as balance? Um, I mean, I, I believe that the the, the ORC, although sometimes um, can be referred to as antiquated, it does provide for uh, tenant rights as well as housing provider rights. Um, I utilize that in my leases and it seems to address uh, most areas that I have of concern. So I I can't state that it's antiquated in that particular area. Um, It's it's difficult because there's times where where tenants might want more than a landlord is willing to give. And maybe there's more that the the housing provider, I'm sorry, wants that uh, tenants are unable to to give. You know, again, if we just talk about the, the amounts of rents or, um, you know, but we're all um, allowed that quiet enjoyment of our properties, you know, and I believe that if a tenant to enter into a rental agreement, if they follow along the terms of those rental agreements and there's nothing that is contrary to law um, or anything that provides them a home that is not safe, habitable, uh, you know, um, and, and we'll, we'll care for in terms of any type of health issues. Um, it's sometimes a case-by-case basis. Uh, I don't know that there's a flat answer, uh, at least for me right now, just thinking about that. I don't know that there's a flat answer for uh, complete equity in, in that space. Beth, is it possible to find a balance between the tenant and the housing provider needs? I absolutely think so. Um, what that is, I don't know. But the the direction that things are going in right now are just, you know, there's this false narrative that's really pervasive in a lot of large cities that, you know, housing providers are evil and they're the man and they're all super wealthy and they can afford to, you know, get the hit and take the hit. But my experience working with our members, both in Chicago and here in Ohio is very different from that narrative. And a lot of people own property so they can make a little extra money. Many of them don't even make that much money monthly. It's it's really breaking even. Um, and Jeanette said this, it's, you know, it's a tax on tenants. When these ordinances pass, I don't think it's really understood that you're this is being passed on to the tenant. You know, you, a housing provider can't always cover those extra expenses. And, you know, there are a lot of people that own property. It's not just wealthy people, it's all kinds of people. And, you know, owning a residential rental unit is a great way to build a little nest egg. And I just hope that, you know, society and policymakers, they don't chip away at that because 
these folks have to retire someday. They have to put their kids through college or help them buy a property or whatever it may be. So I just, I don't love the narrative of, you know, housing providers are horrible and they don't love their tenants. And um, I know that they, many do, and their housing providers, you know, they provide such an important service to society. And I hope we can get back to finding that balance rather than just always the attack mode, because that's just not a good way to go. And our, our members are wonderful people and they really do want to find that balance. I couldn't agree more. I want to thank you both so much for your time today to talk a little bit about some of the rental regulations that we're seeing pop up in our different communities. I hope that everyone listening took notes and will continue to be safe out there as you're conducting your business. If you have a story, want to learn more, have questions, we'll drop our contact information in the the notes for the podcast and please, please reach out. I want to thank our listeners for downloading and subscribing to the ACAR Home for All podcast. Be sure to check back with us next week for another riveting episode of real estate news. And I hope until we meet again, you are finding your very own meaning of Home for All.